Today, we dedicate the mural titled Miriam's Song, and we just read about part of Miriam's story and her role uh, in e uh, Israel's deliverance from Egypt. I'm going to show you a couple of images, and especially for those on Zoom. So this is the original. You're going to see it on the screen. So this is the painting, uh, and you can see what an amazing job uh, the recreation was, right? So this is the original, and it was created by Laura James, and this is a picture of Laura James. She's an artist. She does lots. What's the next slide, I think, TJ? Uh, Laura James is an African-American artist. She uh, creates images of all kinds of biblical stories, right? So she has like a lot of really powerful art. Uh, and so Wendy reached out to Laura when we decided we wanted to do something on the wall and said, what do you think about us recreating? And she was so incredibly gracious, so wonderful in saying yes, of course, you know, she wanted to make sure that we did a decent job. But, uh, you know, she was like, I mean, because this is this is your baby. You you made this. And then some random, you know, white church in Boise, Idaho is like, we'd like to duplicate this. Uh, you know, that's not like just an obvious yes. That's like, oh, maybe. Uh, so she granted permission and I'm so grateful that she did. And so this is the uh, the result. You have in this story uh, God hearing the cries of Israel enslaved. And I love that, that God hears the cries of the oppressed and comes to deliver. But I want to rewind a little bit because the question that should be on your mind is who is this Miriam character and why would we dedicate an entire wall of our sanctuary to her, right? Who is she? So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She is the older sister of Moses and Aaron. Uh, genealogies in both Numbers and Chronicles have them being the only three children of Amram. And so you've got Miriam and you've got Moses and you've got Aaron, right? And Miriam plays a pretty important role really early on. So we're going to talk about the beginning stages of Exodus. So Israel ends up in Egypt because of a famine and then, you know, these darn Israelites just keep having babies. And so the Pharaoh and the Egyptian leadership get really nervous, like people in power tend to do when they feel like power is slipping away. And they're like, ah, I think there's too many of them. We, we need to do something about it. And so they enslave the Israelites. They make them slaves. They subjugate them. And that doesn't stop them from continuing to grow in number. And as though enslaving them wasn't enough, the Pharaoh says, no, 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 we got to put a stop to it. We are going to have to eliminate all male children. So he brings in two midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua, who are some of the few women that get names in the Bible, by the way. They get names, these little midwives. And he's like, listen to me. You are the, you're helping women. Deliver. It's, it's great because li what, like what I'm saying is I don't think too much of an exaggeration. Exodus 1 sets Pharaoh up like a caricature. He's like not a smart guy. They make this clear that he's just kind of like this big, powerful oaf, right? So he calls them in. He's like afraid of the Israelites, and you guys are the ones delivering the babies. Any male child that gets delivered by an Israelite, we've got to eliminate him. And they're like, you got it. But then, of course, they don't do it. They're 
not going to do that. They're going to help all the babies get delivered and live. So then the Pharaoh calls them back. And they say, we tried, but the Hebrews just, they're so vibrant. They, they give birth before we can get there. Which, if, I mean, many of you have gone through labor. That's a joke. Try giving, try giving birth in like 3000 B.C. So, like, right? Oh, we, we just can't get there quick enough? Come on. So, but, but Pharaoh buys it. He's like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? So then he tells everyone in Egypt, all the Egyptians now, if you see any Hebrew male child, into the Nile they go. Because uh, this is what happens when you threaten people in power, right? Uh, they try one thing, it doesn't work, they up the ante. So when Moses is born, his mother knows what his fate is as a Hebrew male child at this time. So she hides him for as long as possible. Like any mom would do, right? Hide him. Oh, three months. But then, you know, three months year olds, they're loud and they're a mess. And so she can't hide him anymore. And she puts him in the reed basket and she puts him down the Nile. Uh, the place of death for many is to be Moses' place of deliverance, right? But it doesn't just take Moses' mother. Moses' older sister Miriam, the Bible says, is watching what's happening, sees what's going on. And so as the basket goes down, Pharaoh's daughter pulls, or has one of her servants, pull Moses out. And she knows what's supposed to happen to Hebrew male children, but she sees Moses and is filled with compassion in the blood. So she's going to bring Moses into her own family and raise him. Miriam goes to Pharaoh's daughter, who just got this Hebrew baby out, and says, you know what? I know this woman who could nurse Moses for you. She's like, oh, really? Yes. And so then Miriam takes Moses back to Moses' mom, who gets to uh, spend a few more years uh, until, she event until eventually he's raised in the house of Pharaoh. So Miriam, Shifra, Pua, Pharaoh's own daughter, all of these strong women thwart the, the, the powerful. These strong women participate in this incredible plot to ensure that love wins, to ensure that truth, that resistance is going to be spoken to evil, to power. And I love that. And so Miriam's character is displayed even as a young child, right? Do you know what it would be like for her to have to go to Pharaoh's daughter, pretty powerful person, and then covertly get her mom to be able to, to feed and to love and to care for Moses? Beautiful. But of course, we know that her character doesn't stop there because in the chapters we read, as Israel continues to experience slavery and oppression, God eventually delivers them, sets them free, and Scripture, and I think the next slide has this, TJ, refers to Miriam as a prophet. So by, between when she helped Moses in the Nile and when Israel is delivered, She's recognized by the community as a prophet. And just so you're aware, Israel doesn't give you the title of prophet very easily. This is not like, uh, like I love hot dogs, I love Jesus, I love this. No, no, no. Saying someone's a prophet means something significant. Her 
courage, her connection with God, her faithfulness, it says something profound. And Israel is set free. They get to walk across the Red Sea onto dry ground. And who leads Israel in the celebration? It's Miriam's song. And this is what we see, everyone playing instruments. The celebration that we are no longer slaves. God has delivered us. We belong to God, not Pharaoh. God gets the last word, not Pharaoh. Our freedom comes from God, not Egypt. And Miriam leads that song. And putting her here as a prophet puts her at the beginning of a list in Scripture of powerful women who get to deliver songs in the Bible. I don't know if you know this. But Deborah in Judges has a beautiful 30-verse song about God's justice, judgment, and deliverance. And Hannah in 1 Samuel has a beautiful song, right, about God's love and God's justice. And Mary in the Magnificat gets to sing of God's deliverance and God's love and God's concern for the poor and the marginalized. And Miriam sort of begins this... uh, prophet singing women, right, giving glory to God. And so we're going to honor Miriam on our wall, in part because this image represents that God doesn't just set Israel free. This is important to me. God doesn't just set Israel free. God destroys the entire Egyptian army. God destroys the entire system of oppression. It is not, it does not remain intact. And so the mural is here to remind us when we gaze upon it, our role to play in being courageous like Miriam, in being faithful like Miriam, to dismantle systems of injustice and oppression. That the church is not here just to focus on individual actions of Joe Bankard or Jenny Hurst or Wendy Blickenstaff. We're here to engage a world where there are already systems and structures set up that marginalize, that crush, that oppress, and that we cannot be silent, as Miriam was not silent. We cannot remain stagnant. Israel was not stagnant. We are here to dismantle. And uh, I wish it wasn't as prevalent as it was. It's, It's boggling sometimes to me because it's hard to know who to blame. There are simply structures in place, an economy in place, a set of consumer habits in place that hurt creation, that make it so that you have winners and losers, some that have more than they need and some that don't have enough. Systems and structures in place that give voice to some and not others. Power to some and not others. And we cannot sit idly by. It doesn't mean villainizing. It means that we go to take the side of those who have been left behind. We go to give a voice to those who have no voice. We look at the world, experience the world, live into the world from the place of those who have been pushed to the margins. That's the Christian call. But it's hard. Because I that's not my name, that's not where I sit. I sit as a person with a lot of resources and a lot of voice and a lot of power. And I'd rather use that to make my life comfortable and convenient. That's what I would prefer. I don't want to have to take a step back so someone else can take a step forward. I don't want to be quiet so someone else gets the mic. I don't want to do that. But that's what I'm called to do. This is what Miriam calls me to do. 
So I'm going to give you some examples in our community right now of systems that oppress and that we all get to do about it. So you know as well, I mean, if you're a homeowner, how's that property value? Pretty good, right? Uh, I think mine's doubled in the six years since I bought it, my house. Feels great. I could sell, I, you know. But you know as property values go up, that's what happened with rent, right? So now rent's astronomical. How about availability? Anybody try to rent something recently? How about trying to rent a house like if you had a family? Have you tried to do that? Almost impossible. Right now, Henry's experiencing it. So Henry's got to find a place. But I, I don't know what he can afford. I don't know where we're gonna, what we're going to do. There is a housing crisis in our community. I'm not sure to blame for it. It just is reality. It just is happening. We have a housing crisis. We have an increasing number of, of people exper experiencing houselessness. We just are experiencing it. And that's a system. And it's chewing people up. And families are living in cars. In response, we've had some that are experiencing homelessness that went and created a demonstration at the Capitol. Did you follow this at all? So there are folks for whom there's no room at Interfaith. They are not welcome for one reason or another uh, at the rescue mission. Um, and so they went to the Capitol lawn. And they wanted to be a sign that there's a crisis. What are you going to do about it? City of Boise, state of Idaho. And they wanted to meet with the mayor. They wanted to meet with the governor. They wanted to may have some requests about how we could keep the place clean, how we could maybe create some affordable housing. So there was a whole list of, like, how can we engage? And in the midst of that, this, was how, this is how power responds. This is typical. Governor Little filed a lawsuit against the homeless encampment to have them removed. Uh, and so it became a dangerous place for them to be legally. This is problematic to me. This, this is a group that has no place to live, no voice and no power. And this is a state agency that has all of the power. And the, the primary concern was that they were killing the grass. Don't, no, I'm not, that's, I'm just being honest, I'm being real. So then they, they offered to move to the parking lot and they said the parking lot is not public, that's private, and you'll be trespassed and you'll be arrested. So they weren't allowed to go to the parking lot. So there's been this ongoing struggle and all I'm suggesting is our Christian voice is here to dismantle systems of injustice. We're here to speak for people that have less voice. We're here to say we're going to do what we can. Part of what we can do is build homes on our lots. We're going to try to do that. Part of what we can do is show up on April 18th and say Interfaith needs a bigger space to have more people experiencing homelessness in their building. If you don't want them on the Capitol lawn, great. Let them go to Interfaith. And they want more space. And they want to bring in more people. And they've, they've been rejected. Their conditional use permit was denied. There are systems. There's no one person to blame. There, there's, I don't know who the villain is. I just know systems are crushing and devouring and chewing people and real lives, and we can do something about it. I'll give you one other system. So there are many communities in the United States, as you know, that 
are almost designed to fail. Economically depressed, over-policed, high crime, educational outcomes, suffering. And when you wonder why is that? Why are there just pockets in all these major cities? Why are there pockets? Like, how does that work? Part of the answer, part of the reason is that we designed these communities through redlining. We, we, we generated them, right? We meaning like US policy. So here's an example from our community here uh, at Collister. So this community, Sycamore, oh, you can you go to the next one, see if it's a little larger, TJ? This is the wording in our Sycamore Overlay CCNRs. I've put this on the screen before, some of you have seen it. No person of any race other than the white race shall occupy or use any building or any lot except that this covenant not prevent occupancies by domestic servants. So if you have like a, a butler or something, like if Mr. Belvedere happens to not be white, he can live in your house, but no owning property, right? This still exists in our CCNRs in the Sycamore Overlay, although they're no longer enforced. But if you buy a new home, it comes in your packet. Not super hospitable or welcoming if you're a person of color. But you wonder historically, why do certain neighborhoods just seem to struggle and suffer? Well, they were created, they were generated. It's a, it's a system that creates a kind of impossibility, a kind of injustice. So we are going to have an event on April 28th here at this church. We have two speakers to talk about the history of redlining in Idaho and what we as a community can do to eradicate the language from our CCNRs. We want to get rid of it. We don't want this to read anymore, right? So that event is going to be a part of how do we participate in dismantling? How do we say, thank you, Miriam. Thank you for the call to stand up to power and say we're going to be a voice for those that have less voice, a voice for change, a voice for justice. So we're going to be continually providing these opportunities as a church to do this collectively. Because Israel isn't just set free. The whole system is ground in the waters. And so we're not going to stop until these systems are taken apart. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the example of Miriam. We are grateful that you're a God who hears the cries of the suffering. Grateful that we serve a God who hears the cries and responds. Whose love is not just affection, a God whose love is deliverance, a God whose love sets us free in the most profound ways possible, and your call to us is to love similarly. So give us wisdom to know how and give us courage and the equipment to dismantle the systems that hurt, that oppress, and that marginalize. Amen.